time for study is over. It is time to be one with John Murdoch. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that the strangers have made you forget. I'm Gareth Green and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time one-man Rocky Horror Picture Show, Andrew Phillips. What is it, because I'm a sweet transvestite from Transylvania? It is, yeah. Or you could be Dr. Frankfurter. Yeah. (laughs) Is it Frankenfurter? Frankenfurter, that's the one, yeah. It clearly... Clearly, we have watched Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we actually talk about the film, I think straight up, we need to say that anybody that hasn't seen the film does need to watch it before listening to this podcast. Yeah, and needs to watch the director's cut. Yeah, definitely. And that's also the version that we're going to be reviewing today. If you want a spoiler for the episode, just know that we think it's very good and very much worth your time. So we'll let you go away now and... Watch the watch the film in question, and we'll wait. Go away. Leave me alone. <laughs> okay, so you're back with Best Forgotten Movies. And with the release of Gods of Egypt, another Egyptian set film that passes a Daz Whiter Than White challenge, today we're scratching our heads over Alex Proyas' Dark City. But before all that, here's the trailer. First, there was darkness. Then came the strangers. In an artificial world secretly controlled by society of men in black, one man possesses a unique gift that can free the population from their fabricated lives. Overly complicated dialogue exchanges and flying fistfights follow in this film that somehow isn't any of the Matrix sequels. After waking up in a bath with no memory of his past and a murdered woman in his apartment, Rufus Sewell stars as the Born Confusion. As he navigates a maze of noir-like alleyways while being pursued by a group of ominous shadowy figures led by Richard O'Brien, Sybil must solve the mystery of his identity and collect enough crystals to boost his team's time in the Crystal Dome. (laughs) 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 Now, Andy, you nominated Dark City for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies, so I'd like to ask you both why you chose it and what history you have with the film. I had not seen it until... I think we watched it at your flat 
Yeah. And it wasn't that long after the director's cut came out. I think it was around about 2009, 2010. Yeah, it was about six years ago. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just watched it in the perfect climate where I knew absolutely nothing about the film. Never heard of it before. And, uh, yeah, it was a real surprise. Yeah. And that's the best way to view this film is just going into it knowing nothing about what's going on. Because it's, uh, it's all the better for it. Yeah. I do have history with the film and that it's uh, been in my life for quite a while now. I don't actually remember it coming out in the cinema. It was instead a friend that recommended it to me in the early noughties. It was uh, Chris J. Wadina, my American friend, who told me that this is a film that you have to see and it's yeah. a film that you are going to love. And it, it was. It was. It felt like it was tailor-made for me. Yeah. <laughs> it was right up my street. At the time it came out, I remember um, a lot of people compared it to The Matrix or compared The Matrix to Dark City yeah. since The Matrix came out afterwards. And I very much sided with Dark City at the time because yeah. at, at that time in my life, I didn't realize you could love two films at once. So you just <laughs> had to like one of them. And if there was anything that was thematically similar, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. I am all with this film and not with that film at all. Yeah. And uh, so I was very much in the camp of Dark City. And it's been a few years since I've last seen it. The last time I'd watched it was with you at my old apartment. And that was like six or seven years ago. So. Yeah. It has been a while, and it was really good to watch it again. I've got to say, it yeah. just it it's it makes me goosebumply to watch actually because I, I really like it that much. Yeah, it was the first time I watched it on Blu-ray since I bought it as well. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I'd never actually watched it on Blu-ray, and I don't know why because the film looks fantastic. Yeah, I don't know why I'd not rushed to see it sooner on Blu-ray in so, in much better quality than I had ever seen it before. Yeah, I think it's it's like a little treat that you give yourself. Yeah, sometimes I think this is a film that kind of works better the the more sparingly you watch it. Yeah, if you know what I mean. It's not as if it will fall apart if you watch it multiple times. It's just like I think its impact will be lessened if you kept watching it all the time. Yeah, it's a film that really benefits from being discovered. Yeah, um, rather than being forced on you. Okay. Yeah, and remember because I hadn't seen it for quite a long time. There's a lot of specifics that I couldn't remember, so it was nice to watch it like that. Yeah, because. Um, you're still sort of thrust in the deep end, whereas if you're kind of overly familiar with it, it yeah, it doesn't have as much uh, impact because it really rides on that. And it really rides on having the audience being thrown in the deep end and not really knowing what's going on for quite a long time. Yeah. And like I say, you had the perfect viewing experience with yeah, Dark City yeah. because you watched the director's cut first. Yes. Whereas my first version was the theatrical version, which really um has a terrible narration in it in a very similar story to blade runner yeah it has a very terrible narration that we'll get into the whys and how it actually came to be later on but even that version back then there was so much potential in the film and there's so much i liked about it that even this much inferior version i very much enjoyed yeah now everyone who listens to best forgotten movies knows we like to provide a little background on our subjects after all it's important to know where the films have come from before we look at where they went. So, what is the history behind Dark City? Well, where do we begin this story then? I think we have to go even before Alex Proyas's The Crow. He um, started writing Dark City around about 1991. Yeah. He'd made one feature film, like a very low-budget feature film beforehand, and he'd done quite a few music videos. I've just looked at some of them. He'd done some of the more recognisable ones. Though. He's done a couple of like crowded house yeah music videos and stuff he's another one of these directors that's kind of come from the music video world which is very apparent when you look at 
the crow and dark city yeah it is it's got a very stylistic look about them that lends itself to music videos yeah yeah you generally tend to find that on the whole a lot of music video directors that go into film are quite creative with their visuals yeah well they often say they're quite creative with their visuals but let story fall to the wayside similar to david fincher actually although alex Proyas's career hasn't been as consistent he's not one of these guys i think he definitely understands what makes a good story yeah it's really unfortunate that he's um following irobot really has gone downhill a lot actually yeah it's been a quite steep decline from yeah. one film to the next because like yeah irobot's not a perfect film but i think it's, it's pretty decent yeah it's very enjoyable but, um, i think it's uh because it's remarkably different from alex proyas's previous films yeah uh, that people were expecting one thing and actually got something else yeah it was more of a will smith movie than an alex yeah, proyas film definitely but yeah films like uh, knowing <laughs> yes again a film that is utterly bonkers but has some good ideas yeah in there yeah. and probably too many ideas but i think that film falters simply by becoming a later stage nicholas cage movie it gets kind of wrapped up in the whole the wicker man remake yeah it definitely is part of that world and um kind of undeserving a little bit and like i say it's not a good film it has too many ideas but it has a quite a, a brave ending it does yeah in fact, the ending is so brave in what it's trying to say and what it has to say about religion and, and its uh, implications about religion, specifically Christianity, yeah. having this, uh, it, the stories being less supernatural and more kind of otherworldly. I wish the film was more about that. Yeah. Rather than numbers and dates and times. I wish the film was more about that side of things, the impact on religion itself. That's another story entirely. But Yes, it is. With Dark City, when Alex Paris first started writing it it was intended to be a a mystery story that was directly influenced by noir films yeah specifically maltese falcon and some of the fritz lang works and apparently originally the the main story revolved around the detective character and it was about ah. him going mad in terms of finding clues and having everything not quite match up and you'd still have this killer going yeah. on around but after a while they changed the focus of the film and started to focus on the on the killer character more and it being about him really and him finding out what's happened to him because he's obviously got no memory of being a killer and it all stems from that really mm-hmm. that's what it started off and then it got passed on to lem dobbs for some notes and he got hired off i think a nine page document yeah, that he sent to him he just wrote what was essentially just a nine-page document of unfiltered thoughts on the script where yeah he said it was like writing chaos it yeah was, <laughs> it was very chaotic but there was something in there yeah and he liked it a lot then later on i think was this when they were with disney i can't remember whether that was before or after the crow the, he did the crow because it was similar in tone to doing dark sitting yeah because it, it would allow him to do some similar visuals yeah it's almost like the, really the stretches legs and yeah way. the crow's like a slightly more commercial rehearsal for dark yeah. city really i mean the crow is a great film in itself but dark city builds off that and obviously it would have allowed him to have made dark city in the first place because mm-hmm. the crow was a success yeah and obviously it's notorious now for what happened <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it could have been with Disney at this point, and then it went to Fox shortly afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Before finding a home at New Line Cinema. Because I know that David S. Goyer was brought in yes. to make it less weird, and he apparently made it weird. Yeah, he did. 
Which I can see why somebody like David Escoya will be brought in to almost dumb down a script. I think they often say that in the um, yeah to, to kind of streamline a few of the ideas and take the edges off a little. And I think he clicks so well with Alex Proyas and what's his name Lem Dobbs that, like you say, it just ended up being a much stranger film with his yeah. involvement. And apparently he was hired off the back of the screenplay for Blade, which hadn't been finished at that time. Yeah. This is another interesting thing that this is more of a naughty's phenomenon, but the apparently the Writers Guild of America initially protested at crediting more than two writers for the film, but eventually relented and credited all three writers. Now, that's an interesting thing because, yeah, most films, especially 70s, 80s, 90s, you would generally not get more than two writers credited no. for a film. Even if there were more writers, you'd have a lot of uncredited writers. Mm-hmm because of union rules, wouldn't get credit because of the percentage of their work or something. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like around this time, like the late 90s, that starts to change and you do start getting credits where it's like by this person, this person, and this team, and this team, and this yeah. team. I mean, we're only it's got silly now. <laughs> Cowboys and Aliens, yeah. really, to see how silly it's got. Yeah, and then it was Fox, and then it was New Line. Yeah, and while it was with Fox, there was actually a couple of names being bandied about to take the lead role of... John Murdoch, and one of those names was in fact Tom Cruise at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow it got out to the crew that Tom Cruise had the script, and for a month it was looking touching go as to whether he might or might not say yes. Mm. It turned out he didn't say yes, but I think that would have made it for a remarkably different film. Yes, yeah. Any of that um, anonymity. Yes, is that right? Is that word? anonymity? Yeah, yeah. That would have just disappeared entirely. The mystery. Mm-hmm. wouldn't have been as strong with that. It yeah. would have been probably easier to sell the film, but the backbone of the film probably would have been weakened a little bit. That's it. I mean, um, another name that was actually involved was Johnny Depp, and yeah. that actually came closer to him being in the film. Yeah. I know that Lem Dobbs on the documentary actually says that if Johnny Depp had taken that role, it would have made for a different film. It might have still been as good, but for different reasons. But one of the things that he was hesitant about was that the audience would be looking at this character that's essentially a blank slate. Yeah. Not looking at the character that is on screen, but looking at Johnny Depp. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I can see how that would be an issue. They do need somebody that's a little bit more anonymous, like you say. Yeah, because it really does strengthen the character. Because the, the idea of the character is to is really exploring, has he actually done what? Yeah they say has been done and then obviously over the course of the film we realise that no he hasn't done any of this and this has all been set up Mm -hmm. but it really strengthens that idea at the start of is this really a bad man that's lost his memory yes because there is a scene later on as well when he is with a prostitute in which he's actually testing himself to see if he has it in him to kill somebody I'm like that is a dark scene yeah it's a very dark scene for him to test himself in that way to go as far as to meet a prostitute, go to her room and think, okay, could I kill her? Yeah, made even darker by the fact that there's a kid there as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But going back to Tom Cruise for a moment, I actually think one of the reasons he probably didn't take this film was because he was off doing Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, He was out of action for a whole year. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like at that point in Tom Cruise's career, he was averse to taking roles with dark leading characters no no he was clearly challenging himself in that way and yeah you know he, he might have been able to do something with that at that point in his career yeah but, he, well um, he did magnolia a couple of years later of course he i did, still yeah. think it's one of his best roles ever it is oh it, it really is but no yeah it definitely would have changed the nature of the film and also so. probably what they could get away with 
as well because like as they say in the documentary and this is really really true the bigger the budget the smaller the ideas yes well every single idea has to have its edges worn away and it yes. has to be almost commercialized when we're talking about studio pictures yeah and this obviously was to some extent when they released it initially Yes, it was. Some of the edges have been sanded off. So it's kind of a strange of us talking about this film because obviously usually we don't talk about films that are released in retrospect in terms of this director's cut came out 10 years after the original theatrical release. Yeah. Uh, It's very rarely that we do that because obviously there are reasons why this film has been forgotten that we'll go into later. But the version of the film that we're going to go into, which is the intended version, is not that film. Yeah. So this is a kind of a strange one for us because we really, really like the director's cut. Yeah, and like I said, the theatrical cut is is fine, but it's hampered by a few things which would have hurt it at the time. Yeah, and it's having seen the director's cut now and knowing the film it can be, mm. it's obviously coloured my judgment of the film it was before. Even though I loved the theatrical cut when I saw it, mm. now I look at it and say, oh yeah, I can see how it could have easily been so much more than it is. Yeah, and for a good decade, it wasn't. So it really colours my judgement of that film. Yeah. So eventually they actually found a home with New Line Cinema Mm. for the film. They sided with New Line because at the time, New Line gave a lot of freedom to creative individuals to do creative things. They didn't really want to impede on the creative process. Instead, their stipulations were budgetary concerns Mm. and more production concerns than anything yeah but they thought oh that well that's a logical home then for this film yeah because they would be allowed the creative freedom to make the film that they want to make and i think once the film actually reached post-production that turned out to be not quite the case but in the documentary they still do talk about new line cinema really quite fondly yeah they never refer to them as evil people they just thought there was certain things that it's the idea and this is an idea that comes back time and time again when you've got people like business people they like everything to be as clear as possible yeah because obviously in business that on the whole is beneficial to your business being yeah. as clear as possible but when you're mixing business minds with artistic minds and the artistic minds don't particularly care about that or the actual film itself rides on not knowing what's going on mm-hmm. for quite a large proportion of the film it's, it's its backbone really yeah wanting to make things clear really damages some films it can help some films in some respects because some films can be a little bit meandering and they do need a bit of focus whereas other films get too much of that yeah uh, i think they even said it in the documentary they're not the audience for this film yes and that's always the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons actually why everybody involved, all the creatives involved in Dark City, still regard New Line Cinema quite fondly is because they didn't actually argue the point. On the documentary, it seems like they gave up relatively early on mm. when allowing for the narration to actually, and, and the re-editing to make the film kind of, to dumb it down, essentially take place. They allowed that to happen because at that point it seems like Alex Proyas might have been doubting himself or whether audiences would be able to follow the film. And it seems like he had lost faith a little yeah, bit uh, it, it, in audiences' intelligence. I think Lem Dobbs actually says that if they would have argued the point, then it perhaps they wouldn't have had to change it. And he thinks that actually that was something that they regret not doing. Because mm. it tested badly. But then afterwards when he interviewed several of the audience members and said, did you understand it? Did you understand it by the end? And they all, they all said yes. Mm-hmm. But for some weird reason, it didn't test well. Because at the same time, we have the same thing happening where we get a film the following year, 
uh, The Matrix, which has a lot of similar ideas yeah. and um, draws a lot of the same influences and also uses some of the same sets, incidentally, yes, yes. that really does capture the zeitgeist and um, becomes iconic. Obviously, it's kind of slightly spoiled by the shitty sequels, but in itself as a self-contained film, yeah. it really captured the moment and is one of the defining films of that year. Which makes me think that the people that made and released Dark City have got to be looking at themselves and saying, where did we go wrong? And I think uh, we know the answers to where they went wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And part of that is just purely in the marketing. Yeah. Because to be honest, it would be the same equivalent if the Matrix had been messed around with to the point where if there was an opening narration saying these guys live in a computer world. Yeah. That would be the same kind of thing. We don't experience it with Neo as yeah. he slowly starts to realize that he is in this computer generated world and everything for the first half an hour 40 minutes it's a complete mystery well that's it the matrix is a film that trusts that the audience will be able to follow it and if they're not able to follow it they'll be able to think about it enough that eventually they will be Mm. or they'll come back to it and revisit it and fill in those blanks that they've missed Mm. because i know that a lot of people at the time were saying oh yeah i really enjoyed it i didn't quite get everything because there's so much information in that film Mm. but they actually went back and now watching that film it's relatively straightforward yeah and i think the thing with dark city is that the filmmakers as well as the studio just hesitated yes they blinked yeah essentially that was when again that house of cards fell down yeah yeah one of the things we are gonna have to talk about on this podcast and i think a lot of people are gonna be expect us to talk about is the comparison between Mm. the matrix and dark city since they are both thematically similar films mm. coming out about round about the same time i know that a lot of people say oh the matrix rips off dark city but really that that's not physically possible no in production <laughs> that is, it is not actually possible i think in the end of it they're both two separate films about two separate subjects and uh, mm. executed in two separate ways yeah and oh yeah sure they've got overlapping themes but really they're not two films that should be pitted against each other so I know a lot of people are going to be expecting us to draw those comparisons, but really, uh, this isn't the podcast for you, no. because uh, we're not going to be going down that road, and I don't think we're going to be drawing lines in the sand about no. this one. No. Okay, so now that we've brains up you with a little bit of history about Dark City, let's actually get into the film. So Andy, straight from the bat, I know that we've already spoke about it, but what did you think of Dark City overall? Well, I just thought it was great. It's a really refreshing film. Yeah. I don't think I've seen a a film that's made in this particular time period that throws in the deep end as much and asks the audience and characters to play catch-up so much and, and thrusts you in the dark for so long. Mm-hmm. Because, like I was saying before, the, the less you know about what's going on, the better it is. Yeah. And uh, the better the, the twists are in the film. But um, I just thought it was very different. There's a lot of things where it, it lovingly takes reference and inspiration from other things unusually a lot older things it's generally from a period between the 1920s to the 1940s yeah there's not much that's modern about the film i love german films as well yeah german expressionism yeah because um between me watching this film with you six or seven years ago i've actually watched quite a lot of fritz lang films Mm. since and i've got into a lot more of the silent era film so since then i've watched m and metropolis which is a film that this very much reminds me of dr mabuse all three films of them hmm. the cabinet of dr caligari was yeah. another one and i'm um, coming back to nosferatu this well. and no nosferatu of course nosferatu but coming back to this and watching it i could suddenly see all of the inspirations and 
where all the designs had come from and what type of film informed the look of this film yeah and how it all fits together and it all makes a weird kind of sense yeah but at the same time because of the way that it does it it is um refreshingly new yeah and unique there's no film that's really like this i mean many people like talk about oh it's a bit like brazil it's a bit like this but it really isn't it's got some superficial similarities to it but as a story and the way that it deals with everything, it's it's very different to a lot of things. Well, I think also in the way that it combines those inspirations yeah. is unique as well because Metropolis, in terms of its cityscapes, look really quite fantastical and bright also. Mm. It's supposed to be this wonderful, optimistic world of the future. And this has an element of that to it. There are these grand cityscapes with bridges coming out everywhere. Mm. But they are lit in such a way that it looks more like something out of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari where the shadows are painted on the walls and stuff like that where it's a lot more moodier and well I guess going with the dark city theme where it's it's like a dark version of Metropolis it's like an inverted version of Metropolis and again it's something that we haven't seen yet so I like the way that it turns that inspiration on its head yeah because at the same time some of the ways that they actually made the film were actually quite modern techniques I know like especially in the uh, cinematography Darius Wolski who was the DP talks about how they lit most of the shots using the the available light that was there Mm -hmm. like all the actual street lights and they use certain kinds of lights to represent different things and that at the time was not used that much Mm -hmm. it was still very much an era where things would be lit traditionally yeah so even in that sense it's quite influential on a photography side i mean there's a couple of films that came before it that used those methods but i'd say there's a lot of modern films that take a lot from that kind of look I think one film that we have to mention straight off the bat, another Darius Wolski captured film, is Prometheus. Oh, yeah. It's got the giant head chamber room. Yeah. Which Dark City does, and I would say, if possibly, better. Yeah, yeah. I uh, bet he would have looked gone on that a second going, I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> this looks familiar. <laughs> Apparently that was filmed on a in an abandoned funfair. Wow, really? Yeah. I don't know quite how, but yeah, that was a, yeah. an abandoned funfair in Sydney. Yeah, because it's anything but fun. Oh, yeah. It's very dark. Yeah. It's uh, very nightmarish. It's got some carnival rides there, though, hasn't it? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, um, it has. Yeah, it's got a roller coaster. Yeah. I really want to go. That, that would have been amazing if they'd done a dark city ride. That would have been amazing. In but, an alternate universe. In an ul- it's, where in this an ulti- film was a hit. Yeah. Oh, why wasn't this film a hit? I know why. This is a an art house film made with a mainstream budget. Yeah. Really, this is what it is you wouldn't be able to make a film like this on an outhouse budget so they no. kind of needed the studio to actually make this film or make it to what it actually needed to be mm-hmm. the greatest compliment that you can give it is that any film always borrows and takes inspiration from other things i mean there's nothing that you can say that's complete original but in the way that it does it this is a film that absolutely succeeds in execution yes whereas a lot of films usually falter in certain places this mm-hmm. is a film that completely succeeds in what it's set out to do yeah there are flaws in the film which any film has and we'll probably talk about some of those later but they are very insignificant compared to what it does get right and yeah. what it does develop because this is a film that was accused of being all style and no and substance no substance yeah but in fact as the director says and i definitely agree with him this is a film that's almost got too much substance too many ideas i actually think that's going to be one of the flaws i mentioned later on is that there are too many ideas at work in this film yeah. 
I think once we start actually speaking about the script and the story, then that's something that will actually come up. But I think the one thing that you really can't accuse this film of at all is having no substance. Yeah, of being redundant of ideas. Yeah. But the fact that it has the style to back it up as well mm-hmm. is um, is just a plus. As Ridley Scott calls it, the proscenium is all there to back up the story. This is not a film that looks a certain way just because. Yeah. It looks a certain way because that's what the story is determined it to look like. Yeah, it's it's a look that is informed by the story. Yeah. I mean, should we actually start talking about the story yeah, in the script? Yeah, Because also, when we don't really need to talk about the story that much this episode because if you've listened to the... Uh, Disclaimer. You'll have seen this film already, so you'll kind of know roughly what it's about anyway. Yeah, one of the first things I want to mention when we actually start to begin talking about the story is that this film is one of the many amnesia-based thrillers of the late 90s and early noughties. Mm. It seems that every other film was a thriller about a character with amnesia. And I'm thinking of films like Memento, even Resident Evil, X-Men with Wolverine character, Mm -hmm. the Bourne films. And I'm sure there are many more as well. I think we went through a list before and pulled up a few. And it does seem that in the late 90s, suddenly everybody wanted to make an amnesia film. But I will say about this is that none of them look or are anything like Dark City Mm. because... The moment a film starts with a character not knowing who he is or where he is, I go, I groan. I'm like, oh, this again. TV does it all the time now. It's a done thing. And I think part of it is because of this glut in the late 90s and early 90s when every other film was an amnesia-based thriller. I think that's why every now and again you get one that comes up now and I I groan about it. It's a real groaner. Mm. Yet Dark City gets none of that from me. It's just really expertly told in terms of this whole amnesia side of things and how little that comes to mean as the story goes on. I mean, it becomes less about finding out who this character is and more about the world he inhabits and the character he's become. In fact, I'd say about halfway through the film, it drops the entire idea of who this character is. I mean, it never it never drops the idea of identity. It's always about his identity and about how he's... Um, building himself as a character but who he is and where he's come from the film drops it yeah, about halfway in a, in through in a weird way it kind of parodies that idea yeah because of the fact that none of these personalities are actually real and we never quite get to the bottom of who actually is genuine and where have these memories come from it leaves that kind of question hanging which yeah. is, which is good because i like the fact that they don't really have any point of reference mm-hmm. they only know what they know at that particular moment in time uh, even including all the leading characters, there's no one who really knows what's going on. And again, this is all undermined by the voiceover. Yes, it in is. In the theatrical version, because there's at least one character that knows. But in the director's cut, it makes it look as if no character knows yeah. really what happened and where they've actually come from. There's no reference to Earth in the director's cut. So it's almost like you've got the unreliable narrator yeah. theme going but it's like turned on its head because it's like the unreliable protagonist because is this his real personality who was he before we'll never know yeah so everyone's a blank slate really which i think um, is a great essentially idea. yeah i think it's a great idea because it starts everybody on an even keel yeah because nothing matters about what happened before the film mm. it's all about what happens now because <laughs> it's the kind of thing where it's like oh if this film was a hit there'd be totally someone going oh, we need to make a prequel to this film to find yeah. out how these people got here. <laughs> I mean, one of um, David Mamet's rule of drama is that anything that happened before the film or play started is completely irrelevant. And I read this book, I can't remember what it's called, stuff like The Rules of the Knife or something like that. And he argued about how flashbacks are a cheat. 
Yeah. And, and so, and this film does have a few flashbacks, but it actually, it really plays on that idea that once this film starts, that's all that matters now. And although there is this mystery initially set up about who this character was before the film started, it completely throws it out of the window yeah. shortly into the film. And it, it really works because of that. And also the flashbacks are misleading. Yeah. The flashbacks Oh, incredibly are, so, yeah. The, again, the flashbacks are almost done in parody as well. The flashbacks don't really function as flashbacks, but in the end... But at the same time, yeah, exactly. They're not actually flashbacks because before this film started, he never had those memories. No, they no. are rooted in the here and now. Yeah. So it really plays with that idea mm. and and completely, like you say, it toys with it in an almost um, in a fun way, in an yeah. enjoyable way. And talking about the memories for a second for face value, we don't actually know, as you said, whose memories are real or not, or if anybody's memories are real anymore because we see that they are in fact fabricated. They are created by. Keith Sutherland's character and at one point it seems that we are led to believe they are swapped and mixed and matched and pulled together but as we see him actually create them we don't actually know if he's creating these things completely from scratch anymore yeah yeah maybe the real memories have just been lost yeah because we have no frame of reference of how long this has been going on for as well it could have been going on for a few weeks or it could have been going on for years or decades or anything because the idea is there's a strong theme of spirals and clocks yeah and the idea of turning the clock back so literally it's every hour yeah that they decide to make changes no every 12 hours every 12 hours sorry yeah uh but the idea is that because the aliens that are controlling this don't like sunlight everything's flipped over so there's no reference to daylight but they turn the clock back so no one has any reference of remembering that there was any daylight because yeah. everyone always thinks it's nighttime. And also, in regards to the set design as well, I mean, we'll get into the filmmaking side of it later, mm. but how these sets are actually informed by the story and where these characters have come from. There are elements in these sets, as mentioned in the documentary, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even the 60s and 70s. Mm. There are some elements in there. And that makes me think, so where, what time period are these characters been taken from? Because they could have been taken from what is essentially our past. Yeah. And um, placed in this world, in this artificial environment. Or whether they've been supplanted at separate times. Oh, of course, yeah. Because they could easily... uh, People could still be being dropped off now. Yeah. Being abducted now and dropped off in this world. Mm. That's the beauty of the film, that it doesn't get too bogged down in all that. No, I'm I'm really glad for that. Because I think if someone made a film now, and this is the same thing with the with um, business guys wanting everything to be clear, you would just get, if this was made by another studio, you would just get far too bogged down with what actually the mechanics of this are. Well, that's it. It's like, um, to reference a really awful film, it's like, if it was done in any other way, like if we were to see how these aliens work on a more day-to-day level, how, how this was all set up and whatnot, it would be akin to Birdemic. When at the very beginning we are shown this character, like when this character leaves his house to go to work, we see the drive from his house <laughs> to work. We see him stop for gas and fill his car up and then continue to work, you know? Yeah. We see him chew chewing gum along the way. It would be essentially the same thing. All this stuff doesn't fucking matter. No. And uh, I'd say that's what Dark City is. It's just cutting out what doesn't matter. There are mysteries that this film leaves hanging, but they are small mysteries and there are things that 
you can fill in yourself. Yeah, they leave you they leave you enough room to fill in the blanks, which is great. I mean, that's the thing with films of this nature. And what films should do anyway, it shouldn't provide you with all the answers. It should make you think and question and yeah. make up stories of your own. It yeah. should set your imagination on fire and with ideas yourself. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's just not enough films around, or mainstream films, or films of this budget that really give you that. If there are, they're much smaller budget films. The last film that actually tried to do anything like this, and it's another film that we mention on this podcast all the time, it tried to do this, and it failed, and it mm. was Prometheus. It tried to leave too many plot strands hanging as a way to yeah. say, these are mysteries, guys, yeah. but it left the wrong plot strands hanging. Whereas Dark City knows that the characters have to have complete arcs. The character's story has to be complete. The world around it can pose questions. Yeah. But the character's story has to be complete. And then when you look at films like Prometheus that get it wrong, the character's stories are just left completely loose and hanging, as if to say, oh, well, it's a big question mark, guys. It's a mystery for you to walk away with. There, You actually feel like you're walking away with half a film, like yeah. you've eaten half a meal. Dark City doesn't fall into that trap. It knows what to leave hanging and what to conclude. Yeah, with Dark City, everything's been thought about and thought out and um, looked at back to front. So when they actually go to think, oh, we can emphasize this and we don't really need this because this is how this works. Everything's been thought about so much that they can actually leave things out and and have it all still standing. Yeah. Because I was going to say before, there are films that do still do this and have still done this, but they're usually not made in the English language. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rarely that you get English language films that do this on this yeah. kind of level. Especially that revel in the films right kind of, of mystery. Yeah. yeah. If they are, they're usually not sci fi. They're usually much smaller films mm -hmm. in scale. Yeah. You don't really get definitely. films of it. I mean, like, for what they even achieved on the budget that they had, it's pretty amazing anyway. Yeah. Talking about one of the writers for a second, would yeah. you actually say that this is David S. Goya's best work? Yeah, it's his most satisfying film. It's the film we can still look at now and go, yeah, solid. Yeah. I think we are going to talk about David Escoya more in our in next week's episode, but um, yeah, I would say that actually this is um, this is the best scripts I would say. Yeah, and it kind of uh, makes me feel like oh yeah, David Escoya, he's, he's all right actually. He's obviously been fucked around with a lot. Yeah, because again, I did watch uh, Blade Trinity the other week, and uh, oh my god, that is a. <laughs> Uh, film but I, I know they had a lot of problems with it they had a terrible time with that yeah. film especially with wesley snipes yeah and um and the studio at the time yeah. but um, mainly wesley snipes <laughs> i would say if anybody that's listening um there's a great article written by Patton oswalt about his time on the blade trinity <laughs> set and working with um wesley snipes who yeah. was apparently stoned for most of the time yeah. and is actually a stunt double for what must be 75% of the film. Uh, he just wouldn't turn up, would he? Just, no, so they'd just use a stunt double and film it from far away. <laughs> That's why the film features Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel so heavily. Yeah, to make up the fact that he's just not there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, how did that actually come to happen? Because as far as what I'm aware of, Guillermo del Toro didn't have the same problem with Wesley Snipes, but at the same time, he's never worked with him again since. No. And um, oh, I can't remember. Oh, who who, oh, who was it that directed? Um, it's the guy at the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So Stephen... Stephen... Um, Norrington. Norrington, yeah, Stephen Norrington. Yeah, I'd never heard of him having issues with Wesley Snipes, but at the same time, this is a series that hasn't had one director. So, no. Curiously, nobody's ever been back for more than one film. Yeah. I mean, when you watch any documentary that features David Escoy, you always know 
this is a guy. He knows his stuff. He's genuinely enthusiastic about what's going on yeah. and what he's doing. And um, it's just unfortunate that a lot of his work gets messed around with. Yeah. The thing is, I don't think that he's the best writer when he's left to his own devices. Nope. But nope. I think he is very good with ideas mm. and at honing other people's ideas into something that's actually filmable. Mm. And he really works well with with this writing team, actually. Mm. it's Like I say, it's created what is probably his best piece of work. I mean, looking at the likes of Man of Steel, which is the one, the film in which he has sole credit over, that that kind of shows his weaknesses as a writer. He's definitely somebody that benefits from being paired with the right people. Yep, yep. And uh, obviously, uh, he worked well with Nolan. Of course. So much so that, in, in fact, they continue to go to him. He might have only ended up with story credits on a couple of the scripts, but... They continue to go back to him to hammer out that story. Yeah, yeah. To get that story right, he is definitely one of the better ideas guys out there. Yeah. Okay, so we've been gushing about this film for a short while now. And um, actually, I just want to mention what I do think are some of the film's flaws. It does have flaws. They are minor. One of them is, in fact, that I think the film ends with a mystery too many, just in that it leaves the whole alien element of the film rather unexplored. They are shown, and we get an idea of who they are, and their society and how it works is shown to us through these characters, but I would have liked to have seen more of of how these characters work. And um, we do, in fact, find out in the film that they are these kind of like energy jellyfish-like blobs that inhabit mm. people's brains and minds. And they, they, in fact, well, they inhabit dead bodies. They take the, the bodies of dead humans and uh, take over really mm. so they look very that's why they look like nosferatu they look like a mix of hellraiser and nosferatu yeah. <laughs> it's got the kind of snm element of hellraiser the kind of bondage element yeah with like all the, the leather straps. Look. Yeah, yeah exactly but they have the gaunt looming terrifying figure of nosferatu mm. and also sad because nosferatu is a sad looking villain i think yeah. and they kind of look sad i think things that are dying look sad yeah, I think you just needed you needed one visual element to really sell it. You would have you would have had to have had a character be killed by one of these strangers, yeah, and then appear later on in the film, altered and being one of these strangers. So mm-hmm. you'd get the visual connection of ah, oh, yeah, they take they're possessing these bodies. As soon as somebody dies, they can be possessed yeah, that, by one of these aliens. That was exactly what I thought that the film was lacking. That was the only like beat that I really kind of wanted in there. It's kind of frustrating because there is that setup there, which I think you could have done. You could have had, you know, the um, the hotel owner that he meets at the start. Yeah. I like the idea that obviously they change jobs and then yeah. when he goes the next day, it's a different person. And then you see that other guy working on a newsstand. But then from there, you could have had the guy in the newsstand be killed in some way and then see him later as a, as a stranger. And then that whole thread would all be connected up from the beginning to end. And yeah, that's a little bit of a missed opportunity. But like I said, that's a really minor thing because... Again, what they what they what yeah. they focus on is so strong anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter that much. It doesn't. It, it wouldn't bother you. No, it doesn't. It's just, it's like, just oh yeah, we could have looked at that. It's one of those things that you probably won't even notice watching a film the first time around. It's now that I've gone back to it a few times. It's like oh yeah, I do think it is missing that one beat. But I think it's because it's it's so good and it's so interesting. You kind of it is a film that leaves you wanting more. You want to know yes. more about this world and things mm-hmm. uh, but obviously that's the thing that it's in its favor that it doesn't explore everything yeah it, it leaves you with questions i mean and talking about that film's ending as well 
one of the things we mentioned before we actually started recording is that it's not a happy ending. No. It may have the the sunrise and the waters being, uh, the sea being created in this world. Yeah, and they're but, kind of back in control of yeah, themselves. But. but it ends on a note that would you leave you to believe that this world is not destined to last forever mm. and these people are perhaps destined to meet not very pleasant fates because it does essentially leave the main character of the film as the god of this dark city. He can tune in to the mechanisms that create this world and mm. control it absolutely so it's uh it's like reference to that saying you know absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah if you have doubts i i have doubts that mm. this guy is infallible there's a darkness to him that we see earlier on in the story it's not going to end well for this world in my no. mind but it's a nice ending it's it's a nice it's and a also because there's no point of reference for them other than they're human but th- yeah. there's no point of reference for them being from earth yeah well at least in the director's cut there isn't so there's no journey home no they are there. This is their life now. Yeah. Forever. It doesn't look like the type of place that could sustain itself forever. No. It's a very kind of small little city. Mm. Maybe 20 square miles. Yeah. It's uh, it's destined to die. Everybody's destined to die in this world. And that's the thing. If you if you think about this film afterwards, it raises a whole new type of film that's mm. just just below the surface there's there's a lot more thought that's gone into this and i think some people have given credit for yeah but at the same time because it works on so many levels there is hope but it's kind of hope yeah. tinged with this doubt it's one of those films that leaves you you have to bring something to it as well yeah and it all depends on the type of person you are it comments on you mm. and how you think and how you regard people and humanity that depending on the type of person you are you're going to come away with a different feeling and a different ending than everybody else and uh, for me i guess it's saying that i'm kind of pessimistic yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> the other reason that it, it doesn't end happily is that um the character that jennifer Connolly plays is entirely rewritten before the film ends yeah so that character that we've gotten to know over the previous 100 minutes is lost yeah and completely. it's now a new pe- it's now a new person it's essentially a death. And he's starting again with her, yeah. Yeah, it's essentially a death. The well, there's quite a few deaths same. in the main characters yeah. in this film. Obviously, we lose... William Hurt. Bum- yeah, we lose Bumstead, which yeah. still makes me laugh. Why <laughs> <laughs> he's called Bumstead. But um, the other thing I really do like about this film, it does also make you sympathise with the aliens themselves. They're not... Oh, definitely. Uh, they're not two-dimensional bad guys. They, they do have their own problems... And obviously they've caused this group of people a lot of problems, but because they've got problems themselves and they want to better themselves, Mm -hmm. but they've probably not gone about it in the right way. But it does do it in such a way that you do kind of feel sorry for them. I mean, even at the end when we literally have one of them left and it's Richard O'Brien left on his own, you kind of feel a bit sad for him. Yeah. Because it's like, we've done it wrong, but well, I'm going to die now. Well, he is the only character that is at any point presented as being evil. And he's evil not because he's alien, but because he's been infused with these human emotions and mm. human thoughts, and they are corrupting him. Yeah, and they can't handle it. And they can't handle it. So you And you get the feeling that whatever they were destined to learn from humans, it was never destined to stick to them. Yeah. Because they cannot handle being human. They are incompatible with humanity. Mm. So the only point that he's actually ever presented as being an evil character is because he's at his most human mm. and it's slowly killing him 
So at any other point, actually, they're just doing what comes natural and doing whatever they can to survive as a race. I think that's always the best thing when you when you're dealing with villains is that the the best villains are always the ones that think they are right yeah. in what they're doing, no matter how misguided it is. They think they're doing what's right for them mm-hmm. and what can help them, but obviously they're completely off track and they don't have any point of reference to why that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, they admire us. In mm-hmm. a way, like that's the whole point. They admire the human condition, yeah, and they want to be more like the humans, but they can never really be like that. And that's yeah. their—that's their tragedy. That's their downfall. So they are tragic characters in of themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do do bad things. Like they do set up, um, like they've set up this serial killer. So they've obviously killed people. Yeah, they yeah. kill a woman to make it look like that the serial killer's on the loose, just to see what it will do to John Murdoch. Mm. But they are it's just they, another experiment. But, but for it's, them. it's an experiment. They don't see it as being somebody killed. Mm. It's in the pursuit of bettering themselves, and it means survival for them mm. because they're like they say they are dying. I would say that they are still definitely doing bad things as a result of this. So it does make them kind of bad. But they're not people. They're aliens. Mm. I want to say bad people, but they're not people. They're yeah. aliens. They exist with a different type of set of moral standards and a different way of thinking. We can only judge them as evil and bad based on our human yeah. understanding. You know, it's a nice little grey area yeah, that we set yeah. up for these characters to inhabit. I would have to say as well, for the casting of The Strangers, because we'll probably go on casting in a minute as well, I'd say probably some of the best casting for a group of villains i've ever seen definitely the trio of the main three actors that you've got as a lead Mm -hmm. the lead strangers (laughs) yeah obviously we've got richard o'brien whose part was basically written for him yeah and he's wonderful in the role i know in the documentary he says that actually it was so well written for him that he had nothing to do when he actually turned up on set. He couldn't elaborate on it any further. Yeah. <laughs> and he said it was almost kind of a... He was kind of sad about that because he likes to bring something to a role. Yeah. But it was so fitted to him that actually he couldn't bring anything else. Yeah. There was nothing else to bring. It was so well realized already. Yeah, Bruce Spence is another one. Yep. Obviously a terrifying looking figure just without any makeup. <laughs> so <laughs> fantastic again. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Ian Richardson. Ian Richardson, as yeah, Mr. of course. Book, yeah. um, who, and David Wenham turns up as well. Yeah, yeah, obviously, because this is an Australian film. Yeah, of course. But, um, yeah, Ian Richardson, for those not in the know, especially our American cousins, if you really like House of Cards, he is the original Kevin Spacey character. He is Francis Urquhart yeah. in the original, and he is rather splendid yeah, in that. And if is. you ever get the chance to watch the original House of Cards, it is rather brilliant. Anyway, so he's a very well-known actor. Not really so well-known in America, I don't think, really. No. But uh, no, it's a great collection of people that they've gathered together to play those characters. As a cast, uh, as a whole, it's very solid. Yeah, it is. I mean, we haven't even talked about Rufus Sewell or Jennifer Connelly yet. Yeah. And William Hurt. And Keith Sutherland. Keith Sutherland. Of course, Keith Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah. Very much playing Completely against type, yeah. He's a weakling, almost. In fact, the only time that he's ever presented in that more classic Kiefer Sutherland way is in the memories at the end. Where he implants himself, he into, implants memories, himself yeah. into John Murdoch's mind to train him to use his power. Especially if you're used to the sort of Jack Bauer Kiefer Sutherland as well. It's very unlike him. He'd probably be slightly shocked for the kind of character that he plays and the way that he sort of presents himself. Yeah, um, he's pathetic. Yeah, and, essentially um, but um and something of a hero at the same time yeah if you're looking at it as the uh 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's kind of the ugly element yeah. where he's kind of morally dubious, but he's trying to help at the same time. And you get the feeling as well from the flashback that you do see that he held out as long as he could. Yeah, and this is all they, kind of part of the plan. He is physically and brutally scarred yeah. by whatever happened beforehand. He's been kind of molded into this figure that now does their bidding. Yeah. But he even carries, like, he's got a limp, he's got a hunch, he's got a scar over his eye. So he's been really savaged mm. by them when they were interrogating him. So it does. you get, get a feeling that perhaps there was a version of him long ago mm. that was a hero. Yeah, and Rufus Sewell, who I think is perfect for this role. And like I said, I don't think it would have worked anywhere near as well if they'd chosen someone more well-known. No. Because it really undermines the the key thread of this person being a blank slate. Yeah. But at the same time, he's got enough skill and charisma as an actor to hold his own well, against everything else that's going on. That's it, watching this film. I mean, he, he really comes to life on the screen and he makes something out of that character that is essentially nothing to begin with. Mm. And he's got this kind of jitteriness and almost a charm to him. He really fits into that film noir setting as well. And, um, I mean, at times... We get a sense of his, like, he's a little bit goody-goody, like when he saves the fish. But we also get a sense that there may be perhaps a couple of shades to him as well. Mm. You know, just as there is with anybody. He feels like a person, I guess, is what I'm trying Mm. to say. He feels like a well-rounded, just, he he is a person. And it makes me think, why didn't Rufus Sowell, why didn't he become more than what he is as an actor? Like, he's what you would call a classic character actor now. But he could have been a leading man. Yeah, and I think the only thing I can think of is that um, it's the old classic adage of he didn't look quite right for what they wanted. He's not, not conventional, a con- he's not enough. conventional yeah. looking enough because he's um, a very interesting looking guy as well. He, Definitely. He, he's very distinctive looking. And it's kind of a shame that he's kind of just really just turned up in villain roles in some rather weak films. Yeah. They always cast people with scars in the villain's roles because, especially with people who have scars anywhere near their eyes, mm. because it gives them that oh look, their look, the way that they mm. see the world is skewered, and it's such a it's such a cheap thing to do now. It's like we as audiences can take a protagonist that looks a little bit off normal. Yeah, not everybody has to be fucking well Ryan Reynolds for <laughs> for a start. Yeah, you know? so, and I was watching the um, making of documentary on the army of darkness not too long ago Mm. with uh, bruce campbell and something he said on that documentary made me think about this and it's that at the end of the day no matter where his career went he was the lead of a studio picture studio financed studio released and forever he will be the lead of this big film you can say that about rufus sowell with Mm. dark city is no matter where his career went afterwards he will always be the lead of this film yeah and it's a great role to be a gold medal kind of thing, to be the pinnacle of your career. It's a really solid film to be yeah. the top. One actor who did go on to be something of a star is Jennifer Connelly. Yes. After the yes. release of this film, her career just continued to take off. Mm. What do you think about Jennifer Connelly in Dark City? Yeah, I thought she played it really well. I think she really towed the line of giving the character that noir-esque femme fatale where everyone's speaking a little bit flat. Yeah. But you're getting that emotion through at the same time. She's kind of underplays it yeah. in a lot of ways. But at the same time, she's still kind of endearing, even though she herself is a, a blank slate. You sympathize with her. 
Yeah. I mean, all of the characters you, you sympathize with in some ways. There's not one character that you can completely say, oh, that's a bad person, that's a good person, and that's all there is to them. Every single character, every single main character that's in this piece, you can sympathize with or, or relate to in some way. Yeah. Even though this film is completely bonkers and off the wall, everybody is relatable in some way because something has happened to them or they need something. Mm-hmm. And that's the mark of a really good screenplay and a really good performance is that everybody, no matter what, whether they're doing something dubious or bad or good or anything, they're all relatable. Yeah. Especially the Jennifer Connelly character and the Rufus Sewell character. In a way, they're the two characters that are the trickiest to play because they are the blank slate characters. Well, they are the two characters, even though Rufus Sewell's the lead of the film, uh, he's the protagonist, they are the two characters that could actually disappear within the film. Yes. Uh, They could be dwarfed by the film itself and by the characters surrounding them because there are some larger-than-life characters surrounding them. And also because they're the most reactive characters. They are the characters that have things happen to them. For quite a long period of the film, Mm -hmm. they're not proactive. Things are happening around them that they don't understand. They're trying to work them out, but they're so out of their depth. It takes a long time for them to really cut on to what's going on. Yeah. So I think that says a lot about both the writing of Mm. the characters and their performances that they actually do hold their own yeah what happens to them and who they are is interesting even against this world that has the ability to completely dwarf them Mm. that i walk away with impressions from these characters says a lot yeah and then you got william hurt who in a weird way because he's probably the most solid of these human characters he's the character that probably seems to change the least yes it's kind of a bit of an echo, I think, of where they originally started with the screenplay. It's still kind of your in. He's still yeah. your, he's still your character that's probably the most relatable out of all of them. Well, he's the one that's asking the questions mm. throughout. Uh, like uh, Rufus Sewell, for the most part, is just reacting to what's happening to him. He's got a question about, who am I? Yeah. But um, it is, in fact, William Hurt's character that's asking more questions about the world and the case and how it came to be and yeah. what's actually happened here. So for a short while in the film, in fact, he's he's the one that's voicing the audience's questions. It's kind of sad as well that he gets his answers, but in the, the most brutal way possible. <laughs> it's, it's a really great reveal. Yeah. It's a great reveal where they uh, they knock down a wall. They're looking for Shell Beach. Yeah. Which is um, a, a memory of John Murdoch's and... Or a memory that's been implanted yeah. or from somewhere anyway. Yeah, it's been fabricated at some point. And Kiefer Sutherland takes him to Shell Beach, which is just this little warehouse room with a painting on the wall that says Shell Beach. So they pick up a couple of hammers and go to town on this wall and it reveals this like vast space uh, in front of them. They are they are looking into space. They see galaxies ahead of them. And, they, hmm. and uh, after a kerfuffle, William Hurt is thrown out into space and he sees that this in fact is almost like a spaceship i guess it's like yeah, a, yeah. it's like a craft of its own floating in nothingness in fact this is another sort of um inspiration i think that they would have gotten and it's interesting that neil gaiman writes about dark city i think it's on the dvd version but it kind of reminded me a lot of Discworld. ah yes as well the way that it's all set out and the, mm. the way that the actual place looks it does look a bit like Discworld. is that terry pratchett yes yeah. yeah it's kind of like the neil gaiman connection yeah. as well there but yeah no it's a really nice reveal of that whole world because you spent so long in the world not really knowing how it's made up and it's it's really it turns everything on its head yeah because 
I watched it with somebody else and thinking, are they going to discover what's going on yeah. before it actually happens? And they never do because it's, no. it's so fucking bonkers anyway. That uh, <laughs> by the time you get to it, it's like, oh my god, what's what? This is that. This has happened. <laughs> it's sad in the way that the way that that character discovers where he is is basically as he dies. Well, that character is very sad anyway. Yeah, because when we first meet him, he's playing an accordion, and later on, he has this um, speech where he says his mother gave him that accordion, yeah. and um, his mother died very recently. And so he keeps his gift along with him because it reminds him of her. Yeah. But then he also mentions that it's weird. I can never remember her giving me the accordion. Yeah. You would think I would remember something like that. Yeah. And that's how he's cottoned onto the idea that this sadness that he feels, this memory of his mother, is perhaps not even real. It's mm-hmm. not even earned. He's feeling sad for nothing. Yeah. For a story that exists in his own head yeah. it gets to me I don't yeah. know why and to really be fair he me. is played by the master of sad William yeah. Hurt <laughs> he is he's very very good at yeah. playing sad characters he is uh, I don't know what it is he's got like which I'm, is why he was totally yeah. wrong for Lost in Space <laughs> Lost in Space <laughs> this is a, a film that came out in the same year as this film yeah this film came out in like January yeah it was a film that was originally meant to be for 1997 but came they out in back January of Titanic. 98 but um, yeah it went from Dark City to Lost in Space. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the filmmaking side of things, I know that we have spoken about this film having a fantastic look to it, and it really does. The uh, the sets are magnificent, the art direction's fantastic. I love how this film takes elements across many decades, and at first you're wondering why, and then that comes to pay off later, you find out the reasons behind that. I love the way it tells this story and the way it's been told. One thing I do want to mention as being another one of those little minor flaws, but Mm. we've got to come up with a few niggles when we're talking about the film, is that I don't really like the telepathy battle at the end. I think it gets a little bit hokey. It's almost like a studio note. Like you said, oh no, we need a big confrontation here. When the two... Oh, do you mean the battle between... John Murdoch and and Mr. Book. And Mr. Book, yeah. yeah. I was going to say that. When they, uh, they fly up in the air and start fighting with their minds in the sky it's just perhaps a little bit too hokey a step too far it's so late in the day that i really don't mind the film has already bought my love with so much yeah so it ends like a a pass from me completely. yeah it's it's not offensive it just looks like a bit like a studio note like we need a climax we we need a fight here yeah yeah because this is not an action film no not whatsoever in fact it's kind of funny that this part of it is the only part that we're really gonna reference not the Matrix itself, but one of its sequels. And yeah. it does feel like that battle does feel borrowed wholesale for the, the Ma- final Matrix Smith revolutions. Neo, yeah. Yeah. Smith Neo confrontation. Obviously, stretched out about 100 times longer. Yeah. Because uh, that battle just goes on forever. That's, oh, it does. Oh, yeah. God, it's so fucking boring. Um, <laughs> that whole film is. It's because nothing happens in those battles. That they, whole they, film they, it's is, literally just fighting. That whole film is just frustrating because it's probably about an hour's worth of actual film yeah stretched out with endless battles mm-hmm. it's kind of should have just been one big long film yeah definitely but um you yeah, could have done the same with reloaded as well yeah well like i said reloaded and revolutions probably could have been one film the story in right. each of those films is probably about half a film's worth of story yeah. between them there is a film somewhere and i think a probably a half decent one as yeah. well but but that's the only element from the sequels, I think, that were kind of borrowed quite a lot from Dark City. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you get the ones where the, the strangers are floating across the city yeah. as well. That's where our Matrix thing ends now. Everything else. <laughs> yeah. Spot on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, completely. There's a certain um, 
a certain shot that they talk about, and this always bothers me, because it's a model shot, and it's the shot of basically where this kind of fairground attraction ride where they go back into the underworld oh yeah uh, on, on the little track and it's talking about how they did where the camera follows them down over the yeah they created the a edge. little miniature for it and they basically made this train track where the camera would follow it down and it had to be done very very it was quite intricate work but at the end of it they go oh if we were making it now it would just be all cgi and i was like no 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 this is all wrong don't say that because if you made it in cgi unless it was really 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 good it would look shit yeah, because I thought, I, when I was watching it, I thought, geez, they've built this set. Yeah. I didn't realize it, it was huge. actually a miniature. Yeah. Because it looks giant. And because it's all miniatures as well, it does, there's no part of it that just looks out of place. Everything no. looks like it all fits together. And authentically. Because there's some really like old school filmmaking techniques that they used. I mean, even the fact that because they didn't have that much money, they had to stretch like canvas backdrops on things and reuse pieces of set and yeah and i mean god even the i didn't realize this until afterwards when you get that huge room full of these strangers half of them are just like maquettes with these polystyrene heads fuck i didn't even know they're just out of focus Mm. and you wouldn't know i do like during that end battle the way that they do capture all of the strangers and their crowds as um you've got this strobing light in front of them almost Mm. like lightning there are a couple of shots there that really do look like something out of nosferatu it does feel like it's right out of that especially because the flashing of the light gives it that strobe effect that so many of these silent era films have between the cuts almost like they've dropped frames as they They've been filming it yeah and many yeah. of them have it and it's like they've really captured that in a modern way in such a fantastic way a lot of the model work especially on the the city itself it does look like a a next step like a progression from the mm-hmm. work that had been done on metropolis yeah especially in terms of the way that the cars move mm. all seemingly together yeah like they're on a little track but deliberately so mm-hmm. and helps to tell the story because it's about them trying to create some kind of order or understanding about the world that they don't quite understand so it all feels a bit unnatural Mm. even the way that they do the model work fits in with the story itself there's a lot of morphing work yeah in this as well that's the only real apart from that murdoch effect that's the only real sort of obvious cgi effect apart from maybe the the actual look of the alien inside which i think is probably cgi yes it is yeah and to take this spiral motif even further i do like how when they go through the process of tuning where they're they change the world that it's in and the mm. structures that are in this world. The buildings themselves, they kind of twist out of the ground. Almost mm. like they're growing. Yeah. I really like how that's done. It's obviously done with um, an element of CGI, clearly, because you couldn't do that with model work even because of the way that the buildings themselves stretch and twist. But it does look great. I really like it. And then they take their place, just twisting slowly into place. I really like that. The other main thing as well, that they built that massive syringe. Oh, as of well. course. Yeah, horrific. for the close-ups. Yeah. Oh, and <laughs> and you can awful. see the two bits coming apart yeah, as it like goes towards the camera. Yeah. yeah. Again, spiraling motif. Yeah. Always throughout the film. It's one of those films that benefits from being thought of for the right amount of time. Sometimes you get films that have been thought of for too much. I know on other podcasts that I've listened to, they refer to, like, um, how did this get made referred to toys? as being a film that Barry Levinson has thought of for too long. Yes. And yeah. that's why it is the way it is. And Dark City's been thought about for the right amount of time. If it would have stewed for another couple of years, it, we could be 
debating a complete horror story of a film. Yeah, I but, think, yeah, um, toys definitely would have been thought out so long that the actual, I think the premise and tone of the film had gone walkies. Yeah, they had lost it. Yeah. You could tell that they had lost touch with what reality was, really, yeah. in terms of that story. They had uh, lost touch with what the through line was mm. emotionally, what the emotional journey was as well. It just been thought of too much. And uh, Dark City, it doesn't have that problem, fortunately enough. Because I can envision a version of this film where they've rushed in the two hours that they have to fit in every single explanation possible. And, um, oh, more of this and more of that. And mm. maybe there would have been some kung fu at the end. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't come away unscathed because we wouldn't be talking about it now if it had. But, um, yeah, I think it would have been in even more trouble if it had been released after The Matrix because it would then just be looked as a Matrix copy. Definitely. And I imagine that any studio looking at it would be saying, oh, well, we can make this our Matrix. And it would have been a Matrix It copy. would be looked at in the same way that, say, um, Equilibrium is looked at. Exactly, Even yeah. though Equilibrium, actually, when you actually watch that film, it's a completely different film than The Matrix is. Mm-hmm. it's just that it shares a couple of visual things but then because it was made after the matrix everyone just thought oh it's like the matrix yeah it's because it shares that gun guitar thing as well that, and the long coats uh, yeah and the long coats the long leather coats i mean it does kind of in a story level yeah sure it's um it is somewhat different hey, it's, it, again it's playing with dystopian societies but it's not really the same in any way it's more like 1984 with gunfights yeah um yeah <laughs> which i can see dark city becoming that yeah. If it had waited any longer. Mm. In a way, even though it is a forgotten film and it's forgotten because of the time it was released, it was still probably released at the perfect time. Yeah, it's not a footnote. No. Yeah, exactly. It's an influential film in its own right. Yeah, and it continues to become more influential as time goes by. Yeah. One last thing that I want to talk of in regards to the filmmaking is Trevor Jones's music. Yeah. Trevor Jones is not really a composer that I'm overly familiar with. I love his Last of the Mohican score, which I'm sure that everybody loves as well. It's probably one of his most iconic scores. But other than that, even looking through his IMDb list, there are a couple of films in there that I know and I've listened to, but there's not that many, actually. And there's a... Well, he did that other Jennifer Connelly film, Labyrinth. Oh, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Can't forget Labyrinth, of course. Yeah. Which is ridiculously 80s sounding. It is. Yeah, very much so. But he's not somebody that I, um, I've i earmarked for future no. listener. And I actually had this soundtrack for a long time. I played it a lot. I overplayed it when, it first, <laughs> when I first got my hands on this film. But um, I think this is probably his best score. I really love this score. Yeah, I mean, there was something I picked up on when I watched it this time around is that the score itself and just indeed the soundtrack of the film... For the first half of the film, it's mainly sound effects. Yeah. It's very atonal and just mainly relies on sound design. And it's only when things become clearer that it becomes more tuneful. But the themes make themselves known as the pieces of the puzzle come together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think it it works really well. And yeah, it's one of those perfect film scores that does not encroach on the film whatsoever it's completely anonymous yeah in the sense that it's there to help tell the story and what's going on and it's not saying look at me look how inventive i am yeah exactly uh, yeah. there are a lot of film scores now and yeah even in the past really that have done that mm-hmm. um, and they it's, draw, it's they usually draw attention they, to themselves yeah it's usually when they've got a lot to carry on their shoulders i mean we find it often with films that are lacking emotionally that they just decide oh no the music will do that 
If yeah. a scene's lacking some kind of emotion, oh no, the mu- the music will do it. So the music has more to do. The classic example, and we've mentioned it before on this podcast, is John Williams' music on the prequels, on the Star Wars prequels. Oh yeah, yeah. John Williams has a hell of a lot of work to do. As a result, his music doesn't actually fit. Dark City score definitely fits straight into this world. It feels a part of this world. Yeah. Rather than like um, overpowering it. I love the um, the use of the songs in this film as well. In fact, it's probably one of the very first indicators that something's not quite right about this world Yeah. in the way that it's made up because one of the very first scenes after the bathroom scene that we get is of Jennifer Connelly singing in the club. Yeah. And it's immediately apparent that the music that they're playing and the style that they're playing is a lot more modern than mm-hmm. the setting that they're in. And so it immediately sets off alarm bells ringing yeah, <laughs> uh, just to the way that they've actually done the music because it's kind of modern sounding. It's like even if you don't consciously pick up on it, subconsciously yeah. you are, you're already starting to think, there's something not right about this world. Yeah. These things don't belong but it, together. It works in the complete opposite way that the music in the club didn't work when we were talking about The Shadow. Yeah, when that yes. is a, When that is a period film... But- that's meant to be in that's period. That's it, yeah. <laughs> this um, is saying, no, we're telling you that we're not actually in the period that we're actually saying, but doing it in a subtle way because of the music. That's it. In Dark City, it's purposefully anachronistic. Whereas with The Shadow, it jars against it. Yeah. There's so many jarring elements that don't quite gel together. Whereas Dark City, it all just comes together in the right way. And it's all done in ways that are more subtle. Mm. Like the way that things... They're like, there's clear thought been put into what elements that they bring through from what different periods. And whether or not they all fit together because this is an over-stylized world and it's meant to be over-stylized because it's been designed within the film itself, within the story. This is a city that has been designed. It has been styled. It has been groomed. So it's meant to look that way. And that's, again, that's why I really kind of rail against people that say that this is more style over substance because even within the film itself, it's supposed to be style. Yeah, and the style is informed by the substance. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah. They obviously just didn't get it. I mean, I watched the the opening of the theatrical version earlier today just to get a handle on what that was like and I was actually quite horrified yeah. of how bungled the opening of this film was mm-hmm. when you watched it in the in the original theatrical presentation because it really is bungled you you've got it does quite a number of things wrong mm-hmm. and really gives the game away but also just shifts the emphasis too much it does yeah because we basically open on the same shot of the starfield and then we get this long narration from keep the subtle and that's always an indicator that a film's been messed around with in post when you get a narration at the start yeah <laughs> but he basically tells about how this how these aliens have come to seemingly Earth, and they want to learn from us, basically. And he's kind of been forced to do their bidding. And this is all up front. Yeah. And then we get a shot of him. Then we immediately see the effects of the tuning, where everyone falls asleep. And then we cut to Rufus Sewell, who's running away. We have no formal introduction to him as a character. So it does quite a few things wrong in that everything's just too much too soon. Most of the cards are laid out on the table up front. Yeah. So you know that these guys are aliens and that they want stuff from us. It's essentially half the film. The yeah. only thing that actually keeps back is that this isn't Earth. Yeah. And to be honest, that's other than that fantastic reveal, it's it's really such a small part of the film anyway. Yeah. And the other main thing that it does wrong is that it kind of gives the impression that Keith Sutherland is the protagonist of the yeah. piece and introduces Rufus Sills' character in the completely wrong way. Definitely. Even if the rest of the film played out 
as was the director's cut, the film's already ruined mm-hmm. in a large way. And, and it's, it's such a shame because all that work that's been undone in the space of two minutes. And uh, I can't imagine how uh, disheartening that must have no, been. No, it must to, have been, yeah, just truly awful. To see all your work pulled down in such a way and so easily. Yeah. I really do wish that they would have argued their point because, like I say, they, they even say in the documentary, if they had, had argued, they would have probably got their way, but they had kind of lost their own way a little bit at that point. And it's weird looking back. Again, I keep saying, and I loved this film when I saw it in that state. I saw the theatrical cut. Even now, seeing the director's cut and seeing how good it actually is, it makes me look back and think, how did I not see that it could have been so much more? I think it's a perfect way to illustrate how changing a couple of little things, how many films just teeter on the edge of being good or bad. Yeah. Based on just a couple of little things that get changed here and there. Like, it's probably a load of films that we look at as being bad movies that have just had a couple of things changed that have made them yeah. into lesser than they should have been. Mm-hmm. It's such a delicate balance, and this just, at the time teetered and fell off the edge of the cliff because of that yeah and because it's all in the opening two minutes it, it totally ruins the film and, and and i think that's where a lot of the criticisms that came for it because this was not a well-reviewed film at the time uh, as you will see when we look at the stats and facts later it did so much to hurt it yeah and it's such a shame because if they just yeah if they'd argued it more and uh, had more faith in what they'd made we will, probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about it not in the same way anyway it still might not have been a hit but at least it would have been probably better received yeah it might have grew a cult following quicker yeah okay and now it's that time of the podcast where we try to figure out just why this film has been forgotten was dark city a giant flop did critics and audiences hate it it's time to move on to the stats and facts first up we have the critics so rotten tomato score is 74 percent now i think this is based on the original version it is based on the theatrical which maybe for even just the opening two minutes spoiling quite a lot of the film is actually probably quite fair yeah i I mean like i say look how much i loved it before i'd seen the director's cut before i could see what it could actually be i still loved the theatrical cut based on the director's cut i would say at least 90 percent Oh, yeah, definitely. Easily. Within a 90s. Uh, over 85. The 90s. Yeah. 85 to 95% would, around those yeah. areas, really, because it is that good. And it's got an average rating of 6.9 out of 10, which, again, because of the theatrical release problems, yeah. I think that's Essentially that's a, a 7 score. out of 10, which is yeah. fair. And it says, uh, Stylishly gloomy, Dark City offers a polarizing world of arresting visuals and noirish action. And uh, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head for that version that it it's praising its visuals and uh, its noirish elements but because the story is already been, the actual central plot's already been ruined they're not talking about that because the game's been given away and the well, whole they effect can't, of the they story can't see the story because it's all up front the whole effect of the story is diminished gone it's gone yeah. completely because everything's the cards are on the table but there is one one man who <laughs> absolutely adored this film and it is our old friend, Roger Ebert. Yeah. To be honest, I'd probably say this is probably one of those films he's loved the most out of all the films he's ever reviewed mm-hmm. because it's immediately apparent when you look at the Blu-ray on the DVD of this director's cut, he's all over it. 
He's he is. in the documentaries. He does it, two it, commentaries. Yeah, he's got two commentaries on the Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah. He absolutely adores this film. And uh, unsurprisingly, he gave this film four out of four. So he says, Dark City by Alex Proyas resembles its great silent predecessor, Metropolis, in asking what it is that makes us human and why it cannot be changed by decree. Both films are about false worlds created to fabricate ideal societies, and in both, the machinery of the rulers is destroyed by the hearts of the ruled. Both are parables in which a dangerous weapon attacks the order of things, a free human who can see what really is, and question it. Dark City contains a threat more terrible than any of the horrors in Metropolis, because the rulers of the city can control the memories of its citizens. If we are the sum of all that's happened to us, then what are we when nothing has happened to us? And the other thing that has to be noted, he is reviewing the theatrical version of the film. Yeah. God knows what he would have thought of when he originally saw the director's cut. He probably would, <laughs> his mind would have exploded. But he is right about the Metropolis crossover, not just even in the way that the film looks, but mm. in its message as well. Because I do know that Metropolis ends with that age-old message that the hands should be uh, controlled by the heart, not the head. Mm. Or it's, um, it's along those lines. It's essentially saying our machines, the things that we create, should be informed by our heart and not our minds. Yeah. Not just cold intellect. It's a combination of the two. It's like a shaking of hands between the two. Mm. And this film actually says that outright. Yeah. It has a scene in which um, Rufus Sowell's character, John Murdoch, actually says you were looking in the wrong place. Yeah. You wanted to know what made us human. You were looking in the wrong place. You were too busy studying our minds that you forgot our hearts. Yeah. And that's the real tragedy of The Stranger's not what they're doing was wrong in itself, but they just went about it in completely the wrong way. It was wrong to us. Yeah. But for them themselves as a society, it's, um, you know, it reminds me of judging. It's like saying that, oh, well, the aliens in the alien films are evil when they're essentially just wild animals. Yeah. They're doing what comes natural to them. This is an alien species and they're just doing what comes naturally to them. Mm. And um, it's also worth noting that this film was Roger Ebert's best film of 1998 this was the one he voted as best film for 1998 and also i think it's in his 500 greatest movies list from 2005 oh gosh i imagine very high up yeah yeah is there so this is a film that he really really did love Mm -hmm. and obviously we don't always agree with what roger ebert says no but uh, i think this is one where we do have to agree with him no yeah definitely we do on a slightly different note and i mean again this is down to the theatrical version we have have we got any reviews of the actual director's cut because I didn't. I it's kind to... of too far after the fact, isn't yeah. it, really? But uh, Empire gave it 3 out of 5, which, again, is probably fair for w- how it was treated at the time. Mm-hmm. They said that uh, Proyas appears to have been so distracted with his gloomy vision of the city that he forgot to actually write anything approaching a coherent story, which is why, while the majority of the performances are serviceable, it's the sheer overwhelming style that gets Dark City through. Proyas drenches each shot in a unique feel and delivers a movie that, with a visual sense, with all the inventive poetic power of Ridley Scott or Terry Gilliam firing on all cylinders. In life, looks may not be everything. In Dark City, they are, and they are magnificent. And that's what really pains me because obviously they're talking about this story that's that's now just yeah. frittered away because everything's been told to you up front. The thing is, though, I still disagree with that review yeah. based on the theatrical cut because although the theatrical cut does give everything away and it does spoil at least the first half of the film in terms of its story and in terms of its impact, all the elements are still there. You can still see how the style has been informed by the substance that we keep talking about. It's just that it's not told 
in an interesting way anymore. It's told in a more flat way. It's like, here's the information straight up front. Now, enjoy the world for a bit. So there is still, even in the theatrical court, more substance to the style than yeah they are really Definitely. letting on yeah uh, again I'm, I'm coming from somebody that loved the theatrical cut when they first saw it but look in probably in retrospect that is probably more of a fair score even overall three out of five maybe a little bit closer to four out of five for empire yeah. standards but yeah i would say so yeah and the imdb score is 7.7 out of 10 which again is closer to that is climbed that has yeah. climbed significantly yeah over, over the last few and imagine years. that's a mixture of the director's cut yes with the theatrical cut because again this is a film that's because it's it's not a massive cult film still yeah it's still very much talked about in hushed tones like yeah you've, you've seen dark city yeah 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 so <laughs> like that kind of thing so it's kind of like a little it needs more people to champion this film yeah because it does have a cult following but it's not as big as it should be yeah and because i didn't realize the director's cut didn't come until 10 years after yeah. it came so late that yeah it's not had that sort of um, Blade Runner-esque uh, no. resurgence yet and in fact it was released on Blu-ray only a couple of years ago and has since gone out of print yeah. so there's not enough people buying this film or seeking out this film because they didn't make enough copies and still haven't made any more mm. so if you want to see this film I recommend get the Blu-ray and make sure that whoever the distributor is near you knows that you want this film email them yeah. Send them messages. Let them know because this is a film well worth seeing. Yeah, because I know some copies are quite expensive now. I mean, yeah, I, was quite I had lucky to buy mine. To... I had to buy mine from a um, third-party retailer, yeah. and it cost me twenty pounds. Wow, so, I, I was really lucky, and it cost yeah. me like six quid. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, pal. <laughs> yeah, but it's um, definitely worth buying it as well because um, again, that's just an indicator of the, of the mm-hmm. popularity. Because by all means, you know, if you need to find it in any other way do so but i definitely recommend buying it because it's only gonna tell people to make more copies of it in the end definitely okay so dark city was made for a budget of 27 million dollars which um is actually remarkably low considering yeah. how good the film looks. every penny's there yeah every <laughs> single penny and more, and more so wherever yeah. they've nicked from i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know how that money is stretched as far as it has really no. To be honest, domestically the film made fourteen million. Internationally, it made twelve million for a worldwide total of twenty-seven million. Ooh. So it's um, it's that's not good. Nope. When it opened, it opened to fourth, and um, it was against a few familiar names, <laughs> as we were talking about uh, Lost in Space not too long ago. This opened against some similar names at the time. Okay, so number one that week was Titanic, followed by The Wedding Singer, <laughs> followed by uh, Goodwill Hunting. And then you have Dark City. Now, number five, you have As Good As It Gets. Number six, you have Sphere, which is... Oh, that's definitely a film that we should cover on Best Forgotten Movies. Yeah, that's really tough competition, though, all those oh, I, all uh, yeah. those films. Because you're probably talking... That's probably one of Adam Sandler's only decent films mm-hmm. there. You've, You've got, also got Krippendorf's Tribe. What the fuck <laughs> is that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> you got a film called Senseless, which I remember was a Wayne's Brothers film. Oh, really? Yeah. You've got The Borrowers. Yeah. Which is, again, another one that's potential best forgotten movies. Very fodder. visually interesting film. Yeah. And then another film at number 10 called Caught Up. Yeah. But um, that opening five is... It's killer, uh, isn't it? Yeah. That's probably the one of the strongest uh, week we've probably seen in terms of like opening week. It is. I mean, even the Adam Sandler film is one of the half-decent Adam yeah. Sandler films. It's The Wedding Singer. I like The Wedding Singer. 
let's um, talk a little bit about the marketing for this film as well, because that is primarily one of the reasons that this film opened so low. Uh. And uh, the trailer that everybody would have heard at the beginning of this episode is, in fact, the international trailer. Because the... yeah. The, yeah, the domestic trailer didn't actually have any voiceover on it whatsoever. And it's so grim and flat. It is. And it, yeah, the main thing, yeah, the main problem they had, because they didn't know how to market this film, is uh, they just went off their best instincts and marketed it as a horror film based off The Crow. Yeah, and Alex Proyas says in the documentary that, unfortunately, the studio was so concerned in reaching an audience that the film wasn't for anyway, mm. that they ended up alienating the audience that the film was actually for. Yeah. So it ended up opening to no one. Yeah. And uh, the other problem as well, all the posters look like dog shit. Yeah, they do. They, they do. They're look, really awful. They look like... It's just like a fucking director DVD film. I've seen some good fan art posters, but I'd say even the um, even the director's cut cover isn't no. that great. It's, no. uh, it doesn't really uh, match up with the visual style of the film whatsoever. There are some very good fan posters out there, I think you'll find, but mm. none of the official ones really add up to much. I think this is the classic example of a film that you can't really categorize into any kind of neat pocket. Yeah. It's definitely one in its own, very unique film. So any sort of classic advertising firm would just not know what to do with this film. Unless the actual filmmakers themselves were in charge of the actual advertising and they had some sort of artistic nous. Yeah. There's no way that a traditional advertising firm would really get a handle on no. actually marketing this film. No way. Because they're all too interested in what can fit into what category and mm-hmm. what pigeonhole. Okay, and that brings me up to the final two questions, the two questions I ask at the end of every single Best Forgotten Movies episode. And that is, first up, are you any closer to understanding why Dark City has been forgotten? Yes, and actually, in fact, the answer was only given to me this morning when I watched the opening of the theatrical version, and that yeah. answered all my questions. It's a film that was um, just mistreated at the end. And, um, it's, it was the final hurdle as yeah. well. It had gone so well for so long, and er- they were doing everything right. Mm. And then at the final hurdle, they just fell, and they face-planted. Yeah, it wasn't even as if loads of footage wasn't filmed because the producers or the studio was interfering when they mm-hmm. were making the film. The film's all there, and we yeah. can see it now. There were things like, as well, as when they were actually shooting the film, They um, at one point... They ran out of money before they had managed to go back and do the reshoot. Yeah. So the film that they had was vastly incomplete. Even then, after some squabbling and some like back and forth, the studio still granted them two weeks to go off and do all the reshoots that were necessary. Yeah. So it's like they got all the footage they needed. Mm. Uh, all right, yeah, there was a back and forth like there is because studios would want to save money no matter what. Any studio would. And there was this little back and forth. And that was about the only thing approaching a problem during the production that they had by the sounds of it yeah because they got everything they wanted it was just in the edit if they would have just had enough faith in the film that they had yeah i think it would have done much better and if the studio would have figured out a way to market it not even if they would have just figured out a way to market it more so that they would have been more comfortable with the audience that the film was for and not try to reach some audience that the film wasn't for yeah i think the film would have done much better the final question to oh, ask, yeah, yeah. which uh, may lift us up again. Yes, yes. Is Dark City one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it remain best forgotten? I mean, I think we've got to say straight yeah, up, it's, it's clear unanimous. as day. Yeah, we didn't like this whatsoever. No. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's best of the forgotten. It has to be. It's, For um, the first time in quite a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'm really happy to say so as well. It yeah. feels like a relief. I feel like I we've had a weight on our shoulders for so long. Yeah, and I think also just to uh, redress the balance, we have had quite a lot of comments recently about, I think the impression is that we only review bad films. That's not and, true. Uh, this is not true, and this is a, a testament for it. And we do look at bad films because there are different reasons why certain films have been forgotten yeah. or brushed under the carpet, but uh, just being bad is not all the case with all these films so and at the same time even though we have reviewed films that we've come to the opinion that they are bad every time we review a film on best forgotten movies we give it fair judgment mm. every single time and even a film like super mario brothers which we reviewed last time we approach that giving it the fair amount of judgment that we could the fairest judgment so we reviewed it fresh and with the opinion that it could be one of the best of the forgotten movies it wasn't, yeah, but it could have been. So anybody who's slightly offended that a film that they love comes up on one of these podcasts, do not be offended because uh, we may potentially be on your side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we cover bad films, but we cover more like cult classics, hidden gems, box office flops. They vary in such quality, like mm. vastly in quality. That yeah. It just gives us a vast amount of films to consider. Yeah. So yeah, I think straight off, Dark City is definitely one of the best of the forgotten films. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it already, then why the hell are you listening to this podcast in the first place? We've just spoiled it all for you. So uh, go and wipe your minds. Uh, maybe get in contact with a stranger to get him to wipe your mind and then watch it again. <laughs> but um, if you've seen it already, just watch it again. But yeah. maybe leave it a couple of months. So yeah. It makes it a bit more special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, before we sign off, I've got one last thing to add. Is that This is actually um, one of Sean Connery's least favourite films of all time. What? Yeah, he, he said it was dark shitty. Ah, uh, I see him, yeah. Gotta get that, that was in so there. gullible. Though. Gotta get in there. I know you really <laughs> fell hard for that. Like, <laughs> You're like, what? What's your cousin got to do with this film? <laughs> he, made, he made Highlander too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry, I had that joke as oh. soon as I um, started the podcast, so I had to put it in there. <laughs> God. And that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Also, a big thanks to followthenerd.com for featuring our podcast on their website. Thank you very much, guys. And we're taken to the skies in our next episode as we ask, Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it Milton Keynes bus station disguised as the UN? Yep, we're reviewing everyone's favourite canon film masterpiece, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Until then, it's bye from myself and get the fuck out of here from Andy. But first, sleep. (laughs) Thanks for listening.